Daniel's an exilic literature. Um, it's the story of God's people away from the promised land in a very foreign, very different, very hostile environment. And the people living there are not all Jews. They come from many different backgrounds, multi-ethnic, pluralistic, and have many different gods, many different religions. So they're polytheistic. But the main point of the exilic literatures, such as Daniel, is that God has not forgotten. God is with his people. And it's very similar to our context, I think. Um, our context, especially here in New York, we have many different walks of life. People who were born for many generations in New York, immigrants who came over maybe a year ago or even more recently, or some of us have uh, immigrated when we were younger. Many different ways of living, especially even within Queens. Uh, we have many different neighborhoods, socioeconomic gradients. We have various worldviews, various political views, various religions, even from one block to another block. And given that it's New York, it's compounded even more um, in New York where dreams can come true in a sense. Anyone can be anything. People can start a new career, a new family, perhaps even have a new identity with all these different things meshing together, these intersecting line, lives and lines, how do we as a church live as Christians? How do we live distinctively as Christians? Especially in the city where data is valued and results must be quantifiable for example, who's the richest of them all? Well, obviously, the market data will show us who's the popularest of them all. The polls will tell us who's the most influential of them all. Take your pick. TikTok, YouTube, Insta. For religion, what's the standard? How do we quantify religion? In Daniel society, the answer was pretty clear. The Neo-Babylonian Empire had just established itself. Assyria has been conquered. Little Judah has been conquered. And Babylon had a resettlement policy where they would take the intelligentsia, the noblemen, the royalty, especially the young. They would take them from the conquered nation and plant them in Babylon. It's like taking out the pillars from the other societies, the conquered societies, and bringing them into their own to resettle them, to reprogram them in a sense, to Babylonize them. And Daniel, a young boy, probably a teen, perhaps in his 20s, early 20s, finds himself in this situation. He's taken from Judah, and he's in Babylon in the Royal Intelligence Council. He's on Nebuchadnezzar's council. And this council acted as a magic mirror council, if you will, from Snow White. 
um, Nebuchadnezzar would say to the council, to the mirror, who's the greatest of them all? And they would answer, oh, king, live forever. You are the greatest. Yet Daniel here tells a different story. I want to look at it's a fairly large chunk of scripture that we just read, but I want to look at it in three, three movements. History, our story, and his story. History, our story, and his story. Okay, history. Nebuchadnezzar, through the foundation that his father laid, Nabopolassar, who had conquered Egypt, and Nebuchadnezzar kind of finalized it and conquered Assyria, conquered Judah, he's feeling pretty good. He's on top of the world, if you will, at least a known world at that time. And this man who has world domination is troubled. He's troubled by a dream. And I think there's a reason why Nebuchadnezzar doesn't tell the dream to the, to the council. Um, there are two options, I believe. It's fairly obvious. Um, option one is he just doesn't remember the dream. He doesn't remember. But I think he actually does remember it. He must know what the true interpretation of the dream is. He must know the sure interpretation. So what better way than to withhold the dream and ask them to give, ask the council to give both the dream and the interpretation. Now, this is not a man to be trifled with. He has world domination and he gained it by bloodshed and he planned to keep it that way even if it required his entire council to be destroyed, even at the expense of his own subjects' lives, he will keep his power. That's to safeguard what he, what he built. He doesn't want to lose it in just one fell swoop. So I think he remembers the dream. So he demands the council, show me both the dream and show me the interpretation. Perhaps he thought, if I know the dream and I know the interpretation, maybe I can circumvent it. Maybe I can prevent it. Though this is in Nebuchadnezzar's head, Daniel reminds us of the comprehensive history. Daniel has been giving us hints all along. Starting with verse 4, notice how the language shifts to Aramaic. It's meant to remind us of a time when the whole earth had one language. It was a common language that all shared. Just as Adam and Eve, our first parents that we all share, had the rebellious desire to be godlike. They saw the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and saw that it would make them wise. So they had this rebellious desire to become like God. In the same way, through a collective, unified effort, humanity tried to forge a way, a gateway, if you will, to God. Kind of like building a giant genie lamp. So this is what we read in Genesis 11, in the account of the Tower of Babel. Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top, in the heavens, 
and let us make a name for ourselves. It's not so much that it was a needle-like tower poking into the skies, but rather it was like a pyramid, a ziggurat, where God can be summoned. Instead of trying to have dominion and exercise dominion over the earth, they tried to exercise dominion over God by demanding or summoning God at their whim. And Daniel wants the reader to remember, he wants us to remember, that the Tower of Babel was in Shinar. It's the same Shinar that Nebuchadnezzar took the temple vessels and placed in the house of his Babylonian god. The same Shinar. And Nebuchadnezzar's overall project, what was it? It was to unify the known world at the time, to unify the people under the banner of his empire. And so Daniel wants to remind the reader of the Babel of the incident, the Babel story. To the Babylonians, this is where the gateway to the gods is. But the same word, Babel, in Hebrew means to confuse. Nebuchadnezzar may have this grand project in mind, but he's confused. Just like God said, let us go down there and confuse their language. Nebuchadnezzar is sorely confused. And so Nebuchadnezzar might have world domination and brought calamity upon Judah, but it was through God's providence. It was because God allowed such a thing. It was a divine appointment, if you will. Nebuchadnezzar would have no authority had it not been given to him from above. Because it's the same God, the same God who confused the language in Genesis, is the same God who allowed this exile, and the same God who sent the troubling dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar had a sense. He might not have known fully and clearly what the dream meant, but gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay. There's a lot of ink spilled by the commentators over which kingdom corresponds to which metal. Without delving too much into the details, I'm just going to overview. The meaning is very plain. It's very obvious. It's not quite so much which metal, which material corresponds to which kingdom, but all the kingdoms, if you see its feet, are resting upon a fragile foundation. No matter how great the image is, no matter how mighty, no matter how bright and frightening its appearance may be, no matter how golden the head is, no matter how strong the iron is, look at the foundation. It's mixed with clay. The feet can be shattered. And it's been like this from the very beginning in Genesis. It only takes one generation, Adam and Eve. And the next generation, what do the brothers, brothers do? They kill. They have evil intent. One brother kills another brother. They own flesh and blood. Though Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, each successive kingdom will be inferior, and the value of each material, material rapidly deteriorates, rapidly decreases. And the main point is this. The main point is that the progression of history is actually regressive. 
the progression of history is regressive. The only four kingdoms are listed, I think, with the use of Genesis, with the repeated word of image. And verse 38, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all. It's meant to remind us of the kingdom of Adam, the kings in the line of Adam, the comprehensive kingdoms of the world. The main point is that the kingdom of Adam will grow increasingly corrupt. As history progresses, it will be more divided, more violent, more hostile. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted an undeniably sure interpretation of his dream. But it's plainly obvious. The foundation is flimsy. The foundation is very brittle. Can it stand? Will it even stand? How is it even standing? With or without the interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar is interested in preserving his own Babylonian kingdom. That's history. Our story. Our story. The second movement. Well, this is not just a picture of the dream. It's not just a picture of history, but it's actually a picture of our story. I mean, who wants a foundation of clay? Um, no one surely wants to build a house on clay. We all want secure, firm foundations, a strong image, enduring health, lasting possessions, incorruptible honor. Well, all of these, it takes time. It takes good things, like good health. It takes good stewardship. Relationships, do you want good relationships with your family and friends? It takes cultivation. Work, no matter how menial it seems or it might seem to others, if it provides, it's meaningful work. And every good gift, it ought to be cherished because it comes from above. Image and honor is a good thing. Having a good honorable presence or appearance, well, it takes consistent public and private integrity. And yet, even though we know all this, I'm saying tautologies here, even if we know all this, if we derive ultimate meaning from this, or if we find ultimate security in it, or if we treasure these things above all else, we will see that it's made of clay. It's actually a frightening picture of our own kingdom, the kingdom of our own hearts. Because there will be times when health may unexpectedly turn for the worse. Friends and family may not be close by and may not be able to reciprocate the kind of love that you give or want. They may not appreciate it. Work may start to bleed into our personal space. It might become perhaps a drudgery, maybe undervalued or simply go unnoticed. We might be tempted to compare our gifts with one another and we start playing a comparing game, seeing which grass is greener. Perhaps if all goes well, maybe all does go well, perhaps there's another kingdom, another life, 
another person, another society, another community, perhaps even a brother, that will challenge and threaten the stability, that the, the security that we want to establish. These things may happen. And so if we build our lives upon these, we will be sorely disappointed. And when we are met with these things, we might be tempted to respond in very undiplomatic, destructive, and vengeful, and perhaps regretful ways. We might become spiteful. We might want to harm others, just like Nebuchadnezzar, torn limb from limb and your houses turned into ruins. We might want to harm others physically, verbally. We might despair and be despondent, become hopeless. Or like typical New Yorkers, we might become cynical and distant and reclusive, turning a cold shoulder. And let's say everything does go well. Let's say none of this happens to us. Let's say none of this happens to you. Even if you have all that you can ever dream of, ever want, a simple dream can expose your underlying fear of what if you lose it all. As much as family and friends are important, there's one that you should love more than our father, more than your mother. As much as work is essential, food perishes, and there is food that endures into eternal life. As much as good gifts are to be enjoyed, wherever there are good gifts, there's moth, there's rust, there's thieves. As much as we should pursue our dreams and happiness, if we build our houses on the sand, the end is, is sure, the end is certain, it will come crashing down like the statue with clay feet. And just as the kingdoms of this world be brought to dust, it says chaff, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, take your pick, it doesn't matter, not just these four kingdoms, any kingdom through all times, through all places, all governments, they will be destroyed. Even the kingdoms of our own hearts all be destroyed. And throughout scripture, this is actually a very key, repeated theme. And I think it's brought out most poignantly in Ecclesiastes. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, like Nebuchadnezzar, had more than he could ever want. This is what he writes, the preacher from Ecclesiastes. I did great things. I built houses, planted vineyards, designed gardens, parks, had irrigation systems to water them. I bought slaves, male and female, who had children, giving me even more slaves. I acquired large herds and flocks, piled up silver, gold from kingdoms and, and kings. I gathered a chorus of singers to entertain me with song, along with many concubines. And this is what such a person has said, has written towards the end of the book. He gives sage advice to the young people. He says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know, ending with a sobering note, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. When we're younger, the whole world is, is open. It's almost limitless, endless possibilities. In a sense, the world is your oyster. 
But Ecclesiastes reminds us that even in our youthful golden days, we ought to be careful, be mindful, be ever conscious of what you're building your life upon. And for those of us who are older, the end of Ecclesiastes paints a very poetic picture. And that picture is this. Just as the dream, the Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, history progresses from heat, uh, head to toe, from head to toe. So in Ecclesiastes, in the very end, life, the individual life, progresses from head to toe. He writes, the preacher, in the, end, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because there are few and those who look through the windows are dim and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desires fails, because man is going to his eternal home, before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Preacher, preacher, which is the firmest foundation of all? And so this is how the preacher concludes. The end of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so, why do I bring this up? I think through the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and the writings of Ecclesiastes and through reflecting on Genesis, it's meant to cause us to reflect on the years that we have spent. If we look back at our lives, how have we spent our lives? Just as Nebuchadnezzar sees a reflection of himself, of himself in the statue, reflecting upon the great, mighty, frightening image what is our foundation? What is your foundation? We come to the rock, the third movement. The word mystery occurs here the most out of all, any chapter in the Bible. Mystery occurs here the most. And it's a very astonishing, amazing thing that such a mystery will be initially given to Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, the enemy of God's people. And so Nebuchadnezzar longs to look into this mystery, and angels also long to look into this mystery. And Daniel, even before knowing what the dream or the interpretation is, asks Arioch for Nebuchadnezzar's audience. And so Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in a pluralistic, polytheistic, multi-ethnic society urgently seeks God's mercy. And they have an emergency, if you will, prayer meeting. And in prayer, what are they doing? They're openly acknowledging, expecting that God will hear his people. Not so much because God is obliged to hear prayers, but God is obliged to be faithful to his own word. And so God, in keeping true to himself, magnificently displays what this mystery is as a lamp unto his feet 
Daniel sees what this mystery means. And this is a mystery not because God is deliberately hiding these things, but as the hymnist uh, Reginald Heber, who wrote, Holy, 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 writes, Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. God is not deliberately hiding it, but we just can't see it due to our own sinfulness. And so, though exiled, because of Judah's sin, Daniel acknowledges that God will not forsake them forever. And so God reveals this mystery to Daniel and through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. And so in verse 28, we read, God in heaven who reveals mysteries, he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. This phrase, the latter days, is end times phrase, uh, the eschaton, if you will. It's the uttermost, the farthermost days of time. And kingdoms are usually associated with power, splendor, conquest, turning houses inside out, including the house of God, plundering the house of God and taking the temple vessels. But yet here, in the last days, the kingdom comes by a rock. The kingdom comes about by a rock. Um, We pass by rocks all the time. It's very insignificant. It's uninteresting. Um, There's really nothing particularly special about a rock that you pass by on the sidewalk. But yet, It's mightier than all the kingdoms. This rock, not a boulder, but a rock, strikes the feet of the statue, the fourth kingdom, signifying all the kingdoms of the world. And in a sense, it's receding into time and proceeding into time to capture all the kingdoms of the world. And it breaks them all in one moment into chaff. And the wind blows it away. This rock is small, unimpressive. There's no form, no majesty, no beauty. It's just a rock cut out from a mountain, but not by human hand. Just as the Ten Commandments were initially given on two tablets of stone, there was a rock who came into this world, not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And the Apostle John properly calls the rock the Word. Unlike the kingdoms of this world, this kingdom that comes by the rock came in meekness and in humility. The Son of God, whose dwelling is indeed not with flesh, was born in flesh and blood, born as Son of Man. The Creator God Himself was born as the servant of God the servant of the Most High God. And Nebuchadnezzar, he displayed his kingly might to kill by threatening. And also the devil displays his evil intent by showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, saying, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. But much like Daniel, Jesus holds fast to the truth. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And as Pilate displayed his provincial authority by interrogating Jesus, where are you from? And demanding Jesus, you're not going to answer me? 
Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? In a mysterious way, Jesus answers, My kingdom is not of this world. As the meekest king, he suffered trouble too. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And as a meek king, a meek servant, his only possession, a tunic, was gambled among soldiers. And he wore a crown of thorns. And in a humble display of his infinite authority, he reveals and fulfills the mystery for which Daniel was paid high honors and given great gifts. Jesus was nailed to a wooden throne with this inscription, This is the King of the Jews, placed above his head. And he died. The silver cord was snapped. The golden bowl was broken. The pitcher was shattered at the fountain. The wheel broken at the cistern. And from his side poured out blood and water. And he gave up his spirit. And on the third day, the stone which the builders rejected became the cornerstone. What seemed like a vain death became the only way to life. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must, we must be saved. And the, the apostle Peter, who once rejected the stone in his very hour of need when Jesus needed his friends, Peter ran away. And Peter, when he realized what he has done, fell on the rock and was broken into pieces. And he found what the true foundation was, the only sure foundation. And Peter, having refound this mystery that he once proclaimed, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied to that, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And this is the rock. You and I, the church, we are that mountain that the rock grows into, the holy temple of God, where the spirit of the living God dwells. And one day, the last trumpet will resound and with a loud voice we will hear the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, holy, 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 merciful and mighty. What Daniel saw was one mountain peak. Hundreds of years into the future, he saw one mountain peak. But we, through Revelation, now see two mountain peaks. Christ's first appearance, inaugurating the latter days, and Christ's return, when he will consummate all things, and it will indeed be the very last day. In this context, we are living life. It's not quite the same as Daniel's context. We have a more fuller picture of Revelation. 
But in some regard, I think we are living in a very similar situation as to Daniel. New York, New York, who's the busiest of them all? I think some of us can say, maybe, with some certainty, that will be me. I'm the busiest. Given the busyness of New York and the various intersect, intersecting lines, lives, contexts, as we're taking the time out now to worship God and ponder this mystery, we have another thing to consider. How do we live distinctively as Christians? How do we live as Christians in front of a watching world, in front of a watching Lord? Well, just as Daniel was taken from Judah and placed into Babylon, into the upper echelon of society, we too, belonging to another kingdom, are placed in our respective positions. And we don't boast belonging to another kingdom uh, sorely because we somehow achieved it. We don't fly any banner or chain to ourselves saying that we've achieved it. And the colors that we fly are not flags of some ideology or social movement. Remember, we are people of the rock, a kingdom that cannot be quantified. Has anyone ever seen a mountain grow? Can it even be measured? But one thing is absolutely sure. Even now, the mountain is growing, and one day, it will fill all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, many words have been read and many words have been said. We ask that your word, the rock, will be the foundation upon which we build our lives so that we might not be found ashamed and naked, but that we might be found clothed, clothed in your righteousness, clothed in your splendor, clothed with the riches that is only found in Christ. We ask that you would do this even today. In Jesus' name, amen.